Well, if you'd open up your Bibles, back to uh, 2 Samuel. If you're new with us, we started a series just a few weeks ago where we're working our way through this, through this book, section by section, chapter by chapter, just to learn it within its context. And uh, it's great to see this physical, lived-out kingdom with God's king and his people uh, really setting vividly an example of what it looks like to live in God's kingdom as we live in Christ today. I wanted to start out by just kind of posing the question, how do, you, how do you feel the church is doing today? I don't mean just this church, I mean kind of the Christian church in a whole or here in our country. How do you feel the church is doing in our culture? If somebody asked you, would you say it's prospering, struggling? What would be your forecast for the church in America over the next five to ten years? What, what would be your forecast? Would it be good? To be honest with you, as I think about it, it feels pretty bleak. It feels pretty uh, not, not so good at all. You look around, it feels like the church doesn't really stand a, a chance. It used to be, as an institution in our culture, it was, had a lot of cachet. Even non-believers thought of the church very well as a, as a positive force for good values and uh, societal stability, but now it feels a little bit like we're the bad guys. Our views on uh, marriage and sexuality are not considered old-fashioned, they're considered hateful and bigoted. Our government seems to be threatening our freedom to speak many biblical truths in the name of protecting society, and that trajectory doesn't look very good. Young people, by the way, are leaving the church in droves. They go off to college, and uh, they kind of never go back to church. And a lot of them are losing their faith completely. The Barna Group has done some stats. They said since uh, 2000, in 2020, there were 45% of uh, people in America considered themselves practicing Christians. Not just checked off Christianity, but considered themselves practicing Christians. Now, 20 years later, it's... 25%. It's been cut in half in 20 years. And it's a very fast slide. And on top of this, the church seems to be struggling from the inside, doesn't it? Every few years, not even a few years, it seems like every few months we hear about another evangelical leader that has failed pretty bad. Very damaging, very disillusioning. And you add on to this the kind of disheartening COVID year that we've had and all the disunity. I've never seen Christians so divided politically or fractured over secondary issues, shaken up to the point that many of them are abandoning fellowships that they have been part of for years. And many people are getting pretty used to their isolation at home and not even getting back to their commitments at church, much less being on mission together. So you could make a strong case that it's not a very good forecast, that it's not a good outlook. God's kingdom work right now in our country seems weak and frail. Now, if you're feeling a little like this, if you can, uh, or maybe a lot like this, 
Maybe this morning you feel a bit shaken up by all that's been going on. If so, you need to take a look with me at this text today because the situation here actually is is very similar. You see, David, God's chosen king, has just been anointed king. If you were here with us last week, you know that Saul was defeated by the Philistines. David had victory over the Amalekites. But before he celebrated, he, he lamented over Saul's death. And then here in our text, we see him anointed as king. But actually, it's kind of not what you thought it would be. It seems very small and weak and precarious at best. First of all, I don't know if you noticed, but he's only anointed over the house of Judah, over one tribe. Right? The tribe of Judah. Eleven of the tribes are not with him. By the end of the chapter, we see that another king, Abner, finds one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and sets him up in opposition. And eleven of the tribes are with him. Those aren't good numbers. Secondly, his, his place of rule, where is David's place of rule? In the text, where does he, where does he set up as king? In Jerusalem? No, in, in Hebron. You've probably never heard of it. Hebron. Just this little backwater, very much in the very southern part of Israel. And finally, we need to understand that the Philistines are actually dominating the landscape. Let me read you the end of, chap, of, of, of 1 Samuel. Chapter 31, verse 7, this is as Saul is defeated, it says this, And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The cities, the Israelite cities, are filled with Philistines. It's a pretty dire situation. This fledgling king with his 600 fighting men and his, their wives and children in this small little backwater town surrounded by their enemies, and he doesn't even have the popular vote of his people. If you're an Israelite, you've got to be asking, is this the king we want to bet on? Is this the kingdom you want to put your lot in with? Picture yourself as the average Israelite. Maybe you're just a farmer. Are you going to get behind? Who are you going to get behind? Which is the safest option for your family? And what if you're one of the people of Jabesh Gilead? I don't know if you noticed it, but in, in, uh, in verse uh, 7, David invites them to be part of his kingdom. They had been loyal to Saul. Saul is now dead. Here they are. They've got the Philistines. They've got Ishbosheth set up by Abner, and they've got David. Who are you going to go with? David is kind of an outsider, isn't he? Candidate. He's an outlier. He's the guy that says, hey, man, maybe you like him. You think he's good, but you think that's a waste of my vote because he doesn't stand a chance. Things don't look good for this new kingdom. But what I want to point out today as we look at this text, 
is three mustard seed realities. I call them mustard seed realities because when you read the parable of the mustard seed, what's the point? A little mustard seed, which is the kingdom of God, looks like nothing. When it's buried in the ground, it's like there's nothing. It's just in the dirt, but it's going to grow up. It's going to grow up to be this great dominant kingdom. So these, these under-the-surface realities that should give us hope. Three reasons that the people of Israel and the people of Jabba should stay with King David and his kingdom. And the first one is simply this. The Davidic kingdom that we see here is grounded in the promise and plan of God. It's grounded in the promise and plan of of God. We see this from the very first verse. Let's read it again. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. You see, although Hebron is not much of a place, we can't help but notice that it's very specifically designated by God. It's not just that David had to go to you know, Judah in general, but he was to go specifically to Hebron. And we'll note as we go through this book, even in this chapter, it's mentioned three or four times uh, in, into verse 3, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Into uh, verse 11, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years. In fact, turn over to the next Chapter, if you do turn over, in chapter 3, verse 2. And the sons were born to David at Hebron. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron. Chapter 4, verse 12. It says, And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. Sort of a gruesome one. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. I could go on. Hebron is a special place. We're supposed to note Hebron. Why? Well, it doesn't take much, uh, much biblical uh, searching to realize that Hebron goes all the way back to Abraham. It was the city of Abraham. It's where he settled. It's where the Lord appeared to him. And interacted with him. It's where Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and him were all buried. It's where the very first part of the promised land to be given to Abraham and his descendants, that it was that first part. In other words, David being commanded to start his reign in Hebron is linking him, God linking him all the way back to the promises of Abraham. The promises given to Abraham that through his descendants, God would create a great nation and people and rule over them and through them bring blessing to the whole world back in Genesis 12. You see, the success and outcome of David's kingdom is rooted in God's promise and plan to bless the world all the way back to the beginning to Abraham. We need to catch from this. This is not just a happenstance kingdom. 
It's not just a, a risky proposition. It's going to happen. It's divinely promised and ordained. And of course, we see this worked out. If you know the rest of the book, if you know the rest of the story, as David conquers his enemies and his kingdom prospers and grows and it moves to Jerusalem and rules over all Israel and eventually under his son Solomon, there is peace on every side with every nation and they're flowing in and receiving blessing, the exact language and wisdom. When God promises something, it's as good as done. When God sets up his king, his king will reign. No matter how precarious the times may look. And this should really encourage us as Christians, as kingdom Christians today, because I want us to flip real quickly. I want you to see this to Matthew. Put you keep your finger in 2 Samuel and flip to the very first verse of Matthew, the very first verse of our New Testaments. Why does Matthew tell us this? This is the book. This is chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see it? The first thing he wants us to know is that Jesus and his kingdom are linked all the way back to the promises through David and all the way back to Abraham. Jesus' reign is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises and plans. As servants of King Jesus, we aren't banking on an outlier, are we? We don't have to fret the outcome of, of the bleak times we look in. We don't have to start hedging on other forms of security. We know what's going to happen. It's been prefigured right here in this kingdom, this kingdom of David, when God sets up his king, he will rule. He does indeed rule, and all will bow, and his people will reign with him, and his enemies will be vanquished, and his blessing will be established in the world. It was foreshadowed in David, and it was finalized at the cross, my friends. Notice the repeated phrase in verse 1, go up. Notice this. Let's read it again. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up. Did you catch that language? If you ever read through your Gospels, you'll notice they're constantly talking about Jesus going up going up to Jerusalem. I must go up to Jerusalem. The disciples and Jesus go up to Jerusalem, and then Jesus goes up on the cross. He's lifted up. He's exalted. And Philippians tells us this is his exaltation. This is where he, how he comes to his throne to reign. That's Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 8. As our king went up to the cross, he was exalted to his reign. And what looked like the bleakest seen for God's people resulted in him on his throne in heaven because it was the promised plan all along. No matter how things look, Christians, we need to know our king reigns 
and his rule will come to its fullness in heaven and on earth. Just as we see it worked out in David's kingdom, the fullness of that will come in Christ. And we need to rest in that kind of mustard seed reality. As we live in a Hebron-like time where the kingdom work of God seems small, seems like it's in danger of being squashed, we need to remind each other of this truth. As the tide of our culture turns and rises around us and against us, we can be steady. Jesus Son of David, son of Abraham, he reigns. Now there's a a second mustard seed reality here that should also bolster us, I think, and that is a seed of divine guidance. This kingdom is established not just because it's grounded in God's promise, but because it's guided and empowered by God's word, his guidance from the very start. Look again at verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. We read right past that. We read right through that. We think, of course he did. But that is in sharp contrast to King Saul, right? In 1 Samuel 15, Saul was told there was one main requirement for him to remain king. Samuel said he must listen to the sound of the words of the Lord. He must listen to his voice. And then when you get to chapter 28, what do you find out? Why does he lose his kingship? We were told that he failed as king because he did not obey the voice of the Lord. But Israel now has a king, God's king. Not the king set up by man, but God's king, and he inquires of the Lord. He's guided by God's word from the start. He looks for it. He carefully follows it. Even when it's hard, even when it's painful, and thus he will be successful, and his kingdom will prosper. Now, I naturally, when I read that, want to jump straight to Jesus. Right? I want to go to our king, who was the very word of God himself, who desired to do nothing but his father's will, who even in his divinity studied the scriptures and would spend hours in prayer seeking to be in unison with his father's voice. And of course, he was perfectly obedient to it unto death. And that's exciting and encouraging for us. We have that kind of king to guide us. But there's also a real, uh, a real challenge here, isn't there? A real instruction for us. We are part of a kingdom work that is empowered by divine guidance. As God's kingdom workers, we aren't just left hanging out there with no clue, hoping God will work it out, waiting for the end to come. We have clear guidance. Guidance about where to go, what to do, what to speak, how to live. It's not a mystery, is it? It's right here. It's even written down for us. It's funny, when I was reading this uh, 2 Samuel, all the scholars were debating about how did David inquire of the Lord? Was it through a priest or a prophet? Did he use the ephod? You know, all these... 
I don't even know what an ephod is, but did he use it? Well, we don't really know, but we, what we do know is that we have God's guidance and his instruction right here as kingdom workers. He has called David to go up to Hebron, and we know from our book that he's called us to go, to go out with the gospel, don't we? And the instructions, the, the guidance on how to do it are illustrated right here in the Old Testament, exemplified in the Gospels, explained in the epistles. We get it from every angle. And when we need more specifics, we can call on him directly in prayer because our king reigns in heaven and he sent his spirit to live in us and we can appeal to the throne. We are divinely guided people as his workers. What empowerment what purposeful, real, hopeful lives we are privileged with in a world lost in confusion and lies that hasn't a clue what to do. So here's my simple application question. Are we inquiring of the Lord? Are you inquiring of the Lord in your life for guidance? Not, not for guidance for self-actualization and prosperity and personal advance, but, but not, not in a sense to build your own little kingdom, but, but his. Are you coming to the Lord as his kingdom worker and like David inquiring, where do you want me to go, Lord? How would you like to use the gifts you've given me? How, how would you like me to use those for your kingdom? What do you want me to do? Who should I work with? Do you bring your circumstances and your resources before him as you look to his word in prayer? I was talking to some missionaries recently, and they do this so well, right? They're talking about where the Lord would have them serve. They're praying about a certain part they thought they were going to go. Now it looks like they may be able to be redirected to this whole other part of the world. The Lord's opening doors. They're saying, Lord, as your workers, where do we go? What do you want us to do? But we kind of go, that's, that's missionary stuff. It's amazing to me how many Christians I meet that are considering a new job, or relocating to a new city, or pursuing another degree, or getting into a new relationship, and I ask them how they think this change or move will help them serve God's kingdom more effectively in their lives, and I get a blank look. They haven't thought about it, much less prayed about it. Have we inquired of the Lord about how we might best be used during this weird pandemic season? How we might redeem this time and this situation for him and his kingdom work? Is that how we're thinking about this, this time? My friends, God's kingdom work is progressed and empowered through his divine guidance. It's how he gets it done, and we are his workers. It's an incredible privilege. The, the power we have access to, 
the very truth of God, real divine guidance for our lives right here in his word and, and, and being able to come to him in prayer to be used for his eternal purposes. What a great thing. Are we inquiring of the Lord in our lives? Are we seeking his kingdom? Sometimes I think we, prayer just becomes that thing where we, you know, bless our food and ask to pass that test. And then we just go on fretting about how everything's getting so bad in America. God's kingdom, the work he was doing to bring all things under his rule and blessing then and now, no matter how things are looking in our present circumstances, is grounded in his divine promise and plan, and it's guided and empowered by his divine guidance. And thus it is sure, and it is unstoppable, and it's exciting. But there's one last thing I want us to see about his kingdom. One final mustard seed reality under the surface here that, that's my favorite one. This is the one that I think seals the deal. And that is, it's a kingdom of gracious blessing. In 1 Samuel 8, when the people wanted a king like the other nations, and God said, it's going to be bad, and they said, we still want it. Well, he, he, he had Samuel tell them, what this king will be like. This is what he said, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 11. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his grounds and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king. That's, that, that's what a king like the nations does and still does. But look at King David here. A king of God's choosing. Here we see something completely different. Look at how he speaks to the people of Jabesh Gilead. Look at, uh, let's just read it. Verse 4, that's, the, that's that second paragraph. It says, when they told David... It was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. These are the people that were loyal to Saul, his enemy king. So loyal that after Saul was killed in battle, they snuck onto the battlefield to take his body and give it a proper burial. What do you think they thought was going to happen 
when they heard that David had sent a messenger. David, the new king, had sent a messenger to them. What do they think? What do you think they thought he was going to say to them in this message? Maybe he's going to say, You guys are dead men. You guys betrayed me. Where is your loyalty? You better bow to me now, or it's time to die. But instead, he announces blessing upon them. He invokes God's steadfast love and faithfulness upon them. This is the ultimate Hebraic blessing that God would treat you as his own children, giving you all his love and mercy and grace and be committed to you forever, no matter what you've done. That's what that is. Steadfast love and faithfulness. But he's actually saying to them a little more than that. Because look at verse 6. I think it's uh, verse 6. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, John Woodhouse, who's a very good Hebrew scholar, says the I is emphatic and the good refers back. So the idea is this. I will do this good to you. This good. This good that the Lord's steadfast love. I will do this good to you. This steadfast love of God, I will bring it to you. This faithfulness of God, I will bring it to you. I will bring you his blessing. David is not like the kings of the world. He is God's king. He comes in the name of the God who made them and loved them and wants to give them all blessing, and he wants to bring it, and he can because he is God's king. Yes, even when they have been his enemies, even when they betrayed him. He will bring this blessing to them. One of my daughter's friends recently said to her as she tried to witness to him, why would you submit to any God who wants to rule over you? And why is he so needy that he needs everybody to bow to him? You see, he's thinking in terms of the kings of this world, isn't he? No, like David, our king's rule is all about bringing God's blessing and grace to his people's lives. He's a servant ruler. I can imagine the people of Jabesh Gilead worriedly asking their leaders after David's messengers showed up, What did he say? And they answered, he said, though we were enemies, he wants to bring us God's love. And of course, this leads to a challenge, a decision. Look at verse 7. Now, therefore, this is what he says to the people of Jabesh Gilead, they're promising to bless them. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What is David saying? It's an invitation, isn't it? He's saying, let me be your king. Come, 
be part of my kingdom. And what's it going to take for them to do this? What's it going to take from them for them to do this? What's it going to take for them to sign on with David and trust his offer of God's blessing? It's the beginning of verse 7. They need to be what? Why do they need to be strong and valiant to follow David, to take his offer? Why? Well, because it doesn't look like much. Things look bad. They're going to have to step out in faith. They've got Ishbosheth over here with 11 tribes and fighting men. They could go with him. They got the Philistines. Maybe they need to kiss up to them. And you know, the thing is, we aren't told what Jabesh Gilead did. We don't know what they decided. But as readers, we know what they should do. We know what happens. We know this mustard seed of David's kingdom grows into a great kingdom. That David's enemies are vanquished as he rules. That David brings peace and prosperity and blessing. So we're kind of hoping, we're kind of pulling for them to be courageous, to be valiant, to have faith, to go with David, to go with God's king, to receive his blessing. And of course, that's, that's our reality, that's our hope. Despite how bleak things may seem for God's kingdom work as his church struggles it's a kingdom of God's promise. He's placed Jesus on his throne in heaven, and the fullness of his reign is coming on this earth. It's grounded in God's promise, which always comes to pass. It's a kingdom of divine guidance. Our God is with us, and he leads us, and he guides us through his word and prayer by his spirit, through all of it. It's a kingdom of incredible grace and blessing. In Christ, we receive the steadfast love and faithfulness of our Father God. He did it all at the cross. He gave it all to us, and all those blessings that are Christ's become ours for eternity. So we need to be strong and valiant in faith. And keep trusting Jesus our King. And really, that's the invitation if you're not a believer here today. Jabesh Gilead, right? They're standing between the kingdoms of this world and God's King. What are they going to do? Well, we see it played out here. Come to the King who's got the promise of God and all the blessing that he wants to bring you. Because it's going to happen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we look at this ancient kingdom, we can look and see a physical reality of our spiritual position today in you, we know that your son does reign and that he's going to return. We know that the victory is his. 
and we have your spirit to guide us and all the blessings of your grace in him. Help us to rest in him right now. In his name, amen.